welcome to the Madden America podcast, your source for science, psychiatry, and social justice. So today we have uh, Dr. Macheri Keshavan and Dr. Raquel Meshalem-Gately. Dr. Keshavan is a board-certified psychiatrist, uh, the Stanley Cobb Professor of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School, and Professor and Academic Head of Psychiatry at Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. Uh, his work focuses on neurobiological models of psychotic disorders and on the development and implementation of early interventions with biopsychosocial treatment strategies. He is also the editor-in-chief of Schizophrenia Research. Dr. Raquel Meshlam-Gately is an assistant professor of psychology in the Department of Psychiatry at Harvard Medical School. She is also a licensed clinical psychologist and neuropsychologist who directs the Consumer Advisory Board and Neuropsychology Research in the Psychosis Research Program at the Massachusetts Mental Health Center Public Psychiatry Division of the Beth Israel Deaconess Medical Center. She has felt privileged to be partnering with the Consumer Advisory Board and participatory mental health research, including recent projects on therapeutic alliance and quality of life, and as well as renaming schizophrenia. We're going to be talking about a particular project of Dr. Keshavan and uh, Meshalem Gately's on renaming schizophrenia. But first, uh, I'd like for us to learn more a bit about you, about the both of you. Uh, can you please tell us and tell the audience uh, what drew you to your respective fields? Yes, uh, thank you, Bernalyn. So as you mentioned, I'm a psychiatrist and have practiced this profession for over three decades. There were many moments that uh, were kind of consciously or unconsciously drawing me towards um, psychiatry from early on in my medical career, including the fact that um, you know, I people somehow felt that they could somehow come and talk to me about their problems. And uh, I felt that that was something that um, it was a strength I had, that people felt comfortable sharing mm-hmm. their problems with me. And I also found their stories um, often even more interesting than um, all the organ system problems that we were taking care of uh, in medical school, whether it's the liver or the kidney or the heart and so on. So the individual person's life experience seemed much Mm -hmm. more captivating, Mm -hmm. which was very early on in my medical school. But what drew me to um, study um, schizophrenia, you know, is an interesting um, question. Uh, when I was a third-year medical student, there was um, a patient that was brought to the emergency room, and um, he um, was brought like a statue in a car. He basically had a fixed position, uh, standing, holding his hand up as if he was stopping something, uh, mute, unable to speak, and he was in that way for a couple of days. And uh, so everyone saw, you know, um, different specialty physicians, including neurologists and internists and so on, did lumbar punctures, and uh, nothing turned out to be, you know, show anything specific that they could find. Mm -hmm. And then a psychiatrist came and uh, took one look at him, and said, this is catatonia. Uh, Let's get him an ECT, and he'll be okay. So 
so he was transported to the psychiatry ward and the course of ECT was given. And he woke up and started talking. That to me was the most mm -hmm. amazing thing I had ever seen. And um, then he said how he was, um, you know, hearing voices coming from the sky. And in fact, one particular voice telling him that he could stop the floods in the city with his hand, which is why he was holding his hand in that kind of posture during his catatonic episode. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, I asked my psychiatrist teacher as to what causes, what's wrong with the this person, what's, what's happening in the brain that might be producing this kind of a condition. She had no idea. Mm. And uh, to me, it appeared like uh, there was this condition which was dramatic and very, very startling in, uh, in its presentation, but there was absolutely no knowledge as to um, how this might come about. What kind of a disease is this? Is it a brain disease even at all? At that time, it was not even clear for the field that um, schizophrenia was necessarily a brain disease. This was in the late 1970s. Mm -hmm. So that is what got me really interested in schizophrenia, even from my medical student days. And then I did my psychiatry residency and uh, then, you know, developed an interest in schizophrenia research. Raquel, what right. drew you to your respective field? So as you mentioned, I'm a clinical psychologist with a specialty in neuropsychology. I've always been interested in um, or fascinated by brain behavior relationships. and the multiple factors and complexities surrounding why people act, think, and feel the way that they do. And I think that part of that interest for me stems from seeing the impacts of serious mental illness in a close family member, mm -hmm. as well as a brain tumor in another close relative. And then both of my parents worked in the mental health field. And for a while, I had also worked as a certified nursing assistant on a dementia unit of a nursing home that was during college. And I think through all of those experiences, I saw that there's still so much work to be done to help people with a variety of neuropsychiatric conditions. Um, and that's not only in terms of better understanding and treating these conditions, but in terms of advocacy. Mm -hmm. And that latter part, I think, is particularly relevant for mental illness. You know, while there's no question that we need to better understand and treat and advocate for people with many health conditions, we unfortunately still live in a world with stigma that's not always friendly to people with lived experience with mental illness. There's often so much stigma that people with mental illness face that they can feel like they don't have a voice mm. or it can lead to marginalization and other inequities. So I think that makes advocacy for people with mental illness especially important. And in my job as a psychologist working in a psychosis program at an academic medical center, I really feel privileged that I can not only contribute to assessment, treatment, research, and teaching, but to advocacy efforts as well. So again, I think both professionally and personally, this work means a great, great deal to me. What does advocacy look like for you in your work right now? Well, I think part of it, which I think we'll be speaking about soon, 
is our work with a consumer advisory board and this project on yeah. renaming schizophrenia. I think those are two examples of, of advocacy. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, that leads to our next question, which is just, yeah, can you tell the listeners about this project and the consumer advisory board? I'm absolutely delighted to do that. Um, I joined the Consumer Advisory Board, or the CAB, at the end of 2012. Um, At that point, the group had been in existence for a few years, and it had been born from a wonderful initiative from the Massachusetts Department of Mental Health to expand engagement of people with lived experience within our research center operations. So, The CAP conducts mental health participatory action research with a particular emphasis on psychosis. And we approach this task with the perspectives of people who have the expertise of lived experience with mental illness, as well as people with clinical and research experience regarding mental illness or both, um, and recognizing the unique strengths that each brings. It's done as a partnership in which all of our contributions are equally valued. And I have to say that the advantages of this partnership have truly been manifold. Mm-hmm. Our program's research has been informed and enhanced by the involvement of the CAB at all stages of the research process. Um, so that includes generating research questions, methodology and instrument selection, recruitment guidance, um, conducting research activities, data review and analysis, formulating conclusions, reviewing grant applications, um, and recommending dissemination strategies. In addition to the survey project on renaming schizophrenia, which we'll be telling you about shortly, we recently completed a research project on therapeutic alliance and Mm. its relationship with quality of life and serious mental illness. And that incorporated the use of two questionnaires that we developed, and we hope to write up our findings for those soon. And if I can, I'd, I'd like to separately add that What we and others who do this kind of participatory action research have found is that not only are participatory approaches for behavioral health research feasible, but it improves the impact, the reach, value, applicability, trustworthiness, and usability of the results and the relevance of the findings of those it aims to serve. These approaches also have been shown to expedite dissemination of findings in clinical and real-world settings, especially for underserved populations. And moreover, when there are authentic partnerships with people with lived experience in behavioral health research, and you know, when I say authentic, I mean not a tokenistic form of inclusion in which there's no ability to meaningfully influence project decisions, but those authentic partnerships honor person-centered and recovery-oriented perspectives. Mm -hmm. Um, They recognize the expertise that's found in lived experience, and they respect patient autonomy. So with all those advantages, Mm -hmm. the hope is that these participatory approaches for psychosis will improve early identification and intervention, reduce treatment disengagement and stigma, as well as minority disparities, and ultimately minimize disability and improve lives. 
we'll talk about some examples of that with the Renaming Schizophrenia Project a little bit later. But I can also share some quotes that I wrote down from TAB members about mm-hmm. the about the benefits of participatory approaches to psychosis research, because to me, their perspectives were so meaningful. So one of the members said that to be considered a valued member of a team doing beneficial work contributes to recovery and can imbue a greater self-respect. You do productive things. It's a place also where we can actually put our mental health history to use. So it's supportive, but not specifically designed to be that way, which is good because it feels a lot better to do something productive than think you're in such rough shape that all you're capable of doing is receiving support. And another person said that in participatory research, People with lived experience might notice some sensitive issues, which might not be recognized by researchers who had never had to deal with living with a diagnosis. They might also be a little more attuned to whether something is going to make the participant feel like a lab guinea pig, and that holding a position that acknowledges and accepts people who have these illnesses as part of their lives is beneficial for stability. It's an environment where the dynamic isn't a completely distinct divide between researchers and participants or treaters and patients and clients. Mm -hmm. There isn't any division of status. It creates opportunities for people in an environment and community where mental health conditions are accepted and where they're working on something not just entirely focused on the fact that they have a diagnosis. So those are some quotes. And I just want to say that personally, for me, this partnership with the CAB has truly made me a better, more mindful researcher, clinician, and person. Um, Mm. I feel like this relationship has been a life-changing experience, and I'm honored and humbled to be part of the group. And I, I really hope that one day, All of our research, all of our mental health research will be done in collaboration with the people Mm -hmm. we're trying to serve, because frankly, that's the way it should be. So let's talk about this project, Renaming Schizophrenia. Maybe first, if you could tell us about the project, how did you arrive at this project? And also just out of, you know, curiosity, were there any personal experiences in your life or work that kind of led you to this question? Yeah, maybe I can take this uh, first. Um, you know, in my career, I have uh, all along wondered about the validity of the diagnostic labels that we apply to the populations that we um, serve. Um, and in fact, this is um, in some ways informed by what patients have told us, told me. Yeah, I'll just give you one example of uh, of a young lady that I took care of. And she's only one example because there are many others who ask similar questions. So this young lady who was um, in her mid-20s had been, you know, referred to me after she had seen a couple of other psychiatrists and had not done very well with, uh, you know, treatment response. So as I was getting to know her, I asked the question, um, so let's call her Mary. Mary, what do you think uh, is uh, the nature of your problem? What's the diagnosis that people have given you? 
Um, so she said, look, I had, um, you know, problems with my attention and was not, uh, you know, focusing well in classes in, um, in middle school. And so I was seen by doctors and they said I have ADHD. And then I, you know, in high school, I started having some problems with depression, anxiety. I was kind of, you know, becoming more lonely and withdrawn. So I uh, went to the doctors again and uh, they, I asked them, they, they told me you have a depressive disorder and um, a panic disorder, a generalized anxiety disorder, and so on. Um, and then I went to college and I became more and more withdrawn and uh, started experiencing some unusual sensations um, of, um, you know, my mind kind of chattering, um, feeling like there were people inside my head that were talking to each other and so on. But I was also at the same time, I was having mood swings that were very severe in either direction, being ecstatic and happy and irritable, and also at some other times being, you know, deeply uh, miserable and sad. So the doctors now, now say, you know, you have a, a bipolar disorder, it's psychosis. And then time went on, and I got into treatment, a couple of hospitalizations, and now um, I uh, I only have the voices inside my head and the different people uh, chatting with each other. I don't have any mood swings as much now. And I asked the doctors, what is my diagnosis? And they say, you have schizophrenia. So basically, as you see, uh, she said, uh, whatever, whenever I go with to the doctors with my symptoms, they just give some Latin name to the same symptoms and call it a diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So what is it that new that you're going to tell me about my diagnosis? They say schizophrenia, which means split brain and split mind. But can you prove to me that I have a split brain? You know, can you do a test and show me that I have schizophrenia? So I was, you know, totally humbled by that question. And uh, so we in this field have no idea as to how to um, correctly label a given person's illness. If you had a medical problem, um, let's say you had a uh, pneumonia, um, you had um, cough and breathlessness and, um, and fever, and you went to the doctors, they would um, do a chest x-ray and you know, examine your sputum and find a pneumococcus, and they'll say you have a pneumococcal pneumonia. Or if you had, um, you know, a seizure problem, they would do an EEG and look at some brain wave patterns and tell you you have a seizure disorder. But unfortunately, in psychiatry, we, we have not come to that point, and we do not have a way of defining or uh, naming a, the illness by what exactly it is. Mm -hmm. We go by collections of symptoms. Sometimes these symptoms are more like adjectives than reality. So this is a very unsatisfactory state of affairs, and which is what, uh, uh, you know, I was talking uh, to my board and, uh, you know, really 
beloved friend uh, Larry Seidman, who you both know, and uh, he agreed with me. And uh, he had uh, been running this uh, consumer advisory board cab, and he asked me to join, and I started going to those meetings. And so uh, the idea for a project uh, that uh, you know the cab members could collaborate with us uh, came up. And so I suggested this idea of a naming project. I had written a paper on that. Mm. Uh, alternative names for schizophrenia and i shared that thank you raquel if, i don't know if you had anything to add about uh what led you to arrive at this project yeah so i think dr Catherine javon gave a wonderful overview about the beginnings of the project um you know as i mentioned before i've long been interested in reducing stigma for people with mental illness you know both professionally and and personally because i've seen the impacts of different labels on people. You know, like Dr. Keshavan mentioned, the cabs started talking about this idea about developing a survey to rename schizophrenia with Dr. Keshavan, Dr. Seidman, and I around four to five years ago. And we were really appreciative of Dr. Keshavan's expertise. So, the group had talked about the stigma associated with the word schizophrenia and how the name doesn't accurately describe the condition. Then we all discussed the idea of renaming schizophrenia as it was done in other countries and how we might approach that within this country. We thought that the next best step in addition to a more thorough review of the literature, would be to survey a broad sample of community stakeholders about alternate names for schizophrenia, and that the stakeholders would include those with lived experience, family members, clinicians, researchers, and the general public. So, we scour the literature for alternate names proposed by researchers, as well as new names for schizophrenia that have been used in other countries. And as I mentioned, one of our CAB members also proposed an alternate name that was used in our survey. So in 2019, both paper and online versions of our survey were born. I know that we'll probably get into the results later, but mm -hmm. I'll just briefly note that the survey included non-identifiable basic demographics, a question about whether schizophrenia should be renamed and how stigmatizing the name is, ratings of proposed alternate names for schizophrenia, as well as schizophrenia itself, and then those ratings were repeated after neutral descriptions were provided for each alternate name. And finally, we asked survey respondents for comments and feedback, including for any other potential alternate names as well. So that's just a little more background about the development of our project. Perfect. Yeah, thank you for um, outlining the project. And I guess, yeah, before we dive into the the results, why now um, are we ready to ask this question about, you know, should we rename schizophrenia? All right, thank you. Um, it's an important question. So why is it now... Why is now a good time to ask this question? So there are you know, at least a couple of reasons for this. First of all, you know, in the last um, 20 to 30 years, we have learned more about the brain than ever before in the history of uh, science. 
So there is so much more knowledge that, um, you know, even behaviors that um, we currently do not fully understand in terms of their causation are now, um, you know, subject to or are answerable, um, you know, with the sophisticated tools that we now have of neuroscience, neuroimaging, electrophysiology, and so forth. Secondly, um, you know, the uh, terms that we use for psychiatric disorders, especially the diagnostic label of schizophrenia, um, you know, there has been widespread recognition that uh, this kind of a terminology is highly associated with stigmatizing attitudes. Um, and, uh, you know, look around the rest of the world and already other countries have been bold enough to go ahead and uh, make a change in um, naming of this illness. Like in Japan, um, the term schizophrenia was replaced a few years ago by the term integration disorder. In Korea, the term schizophrenia was replaced by the term attunement disorder. Uh, in China, the term disorders of thought and perception mm -hmm. was introduced to define um, schizophrenia. So there have been many of these efforts. And, you know, these are all coming from largely, uh, you know, uh, movement by the patient and family populations themselves, these, these kind of um, uh, alternative suggestions. But there have been some suggestions from the medical community as well. For example, uh, one name that has been proposed by Jim Van Oss in the Netherlands, who suggested uh, the name salience disorder. Another name that was suggested uh, was a dopamine dysregulation disorder. And so I can go uh, on a number of potential alternatives that have been mm. suggested. So it's not that the field has settled on a particular name. But there seems to be increasing, um, you know, uh, conviction that the current name is not satisfactory. So we have to really lead an effort to um, ask ourselves, is this an appropriate name and uh, should we be thinking of alternatives and so forth? Mm -hmm. The third reason why um, now is a good time to ask that question is that the countries we have who have made this kind of an effort to change the names, they have actually shown that with a less stigmatizing name, such as integrative disorder or attunement disorder, um, it has been observed that doctors are more willing to talk to patients about the, their diagnosis and patients are more willing to accept their diagnosis. So studies have also shown a reduction in stigma. Mm -hmm. So there are, you know, all these reasons why now is a good time to ask this question. So you asked the question as to whether psychiatry as an institution has been reluctant to confront this issue. Um, the uh, one reason that I think, um, at least I can speak about the United States, people and organizations and institutions are resistant to change because, mm -hmm. for example, if you change a DSM code, 
by something else is going to create a huge amount of confusion for billing purposes, uh, covering people's uh, health care through insurance and so on. There are legal consequences of changing the name and so on. So there is resistance because change is complicated. Mm-hmm. So, however, you know, one has to make, make a beginning somewhere. So that's the, that's what I would say. There has been reluctance, and that is partly because of the resistance to change, mm-hmm. because of the complexities of uh, billing and legal issues and so on. Mm-hmm. Of course, I've heard about some of these name changes that it, have happened, um, like in China and Japan. But I, did, I hadn't really heard this, that um, what you mentioned, that doctors are more likely to talk to their patients about their diagnosis and patients are more likely to accept the diagnosis. I don't know if you have thoughts about why that is, if you could just tell us more about your thoughts on that. Yeah. So it's because, um, you know, uh, a term such as, let's say, integrative disorder does not have any connotation that, uh, you know, there is a, you know, there is a broken mind or something like that and uh, you know when you say someone has difficulties integrating one's thoughts that kind of explains uh, to the patients what exactly they are experiencing Mm -hmm. but if you say you have a split mind it doesn't make sense Mm. so um, patients are more willing to understand and accept something that they can um, tune into and understand uh, as opposed to a label that um, you know that that doesn't have any valid um, uh, explanatory value uh, to that label. So if I go to the doctors and say, you know, um, he says uh, you have uh, hypertension um, or diabetes, and uh, you know, if I ask the doctor, what is hypertension? Doctor? Hypertension means increased blood pressure. So I can take your blood pressure and show you that you have high number of uh, blood pressure values. So it immediately makes sense. Mm-hmm. So patients are more likely to accept a label that actually explains to them what, what they have, uh, rather than a term that, um, that that gives them a kind of a um, an adjective that um, they don't agree with. So, uh, so for, for those reasons, it was not surprising that uh, mm-hmm. in Japan, it did become the official name. So there was, it's not that it did not stick. Mm. It did stick in other countries. Why might it uh, stick now? And I right. think uh, we need to show research that it actually has value and then it could stick. So now going back to the project itself, what are some of the names uh, that were considered? Yeah, I think you already mentioned how they were chosen, but maybe we could share with the listeners what some of the names that were in this project. There were nine alternate names in our survey, you know, aside from schizophrenia. There was altered perception syndrome. There was attunement disorder, Bloiler's syndrome, disconnectivity syndrome, dopamine dysregulation syndrome integration disorder, um, there was neuro-emotional integration disorder, psychosis spectrum syndrome, and salient syndrome. And can you tell us now about the results of the, of the survey, the results of your study? Sure. So let me, I guess let me first start telling you about 
our sample, um, we were able to recruit 1,190 people to take our survey. The average age was about 45, and participants represented a very wide age range. It was from 11 all the way to 87 years old, and about two-thirds of the sample identified as female. 25% of the sample indicated a history of psychosis, and of those with psychosis, most reported a schizophrenia spectrum diagnosis. We saw a similar pattern um, being reported by family members, with the majority reporting having relatives with a schizophrenia spectrum diagnosis. And of the stakeholder groups surveyed, respondents most frequently identified as family members of people with mental illness, followed by mental health providers, and then by those having lived experience of mental illness themselves. Psychologists comprise the majority of mental health providers, though there was also meaningful representation from other types of clinicians like social workers, psychiatrists, and peer specialists. So in terms of results, um, first, the majority of survey respondents, 74%, favored a name change for schizophrenia. Another important finding is that the majority of respondents found the name schizophrenia stigmatizing. On a Likert scale of one to five, 71% of responses were either scored as a four, which is somewhat stigmatizing, or a five, which was very stigmatizing. And of the proposed alternate names, altered perception syndrome emerged as the most favored term. And that was followed by psychosis spectrum syndrome and neuroemotional integration disorder. The least favored terms, aside from schizophrenia, were Bloiler syndrome and salient syndrome. I want to point out, kind of as I mentioned before, that altered perception syndrome is a term that was coined by a cab member with lived experience of schizophrenia, whose name is Linda Larson. Um, it's the one term that has not been used as an alternative term for schizophrenia in the literature or in any other countries. And it wasn't just the highest rated term across the entire sample, but within each stakeholder group. So from our perspective, the popularity of this one term coined by someone with lived experience highlights how imperative it is to include the ideas and opinions of those living with a condition in all renaming efforts. And that may indeed be what helps lead to a good alternate name for schizophrenia. Mm -hmm. You know, so apart from being non-stigmatizing, descriptive, and easy to understand, altered perception syndrome also has some face and construct validity um, as altered perception and information processing are core components of schizophrenia, mm -hmm. and they may accurately define the experience of those with the condition. I think more broadly in the literature, mental health professionals will usually suggest that a successful name change should be clearly defined, neutral, easily understood, and illustrate the core symptoms of the disorder in order to increase accessibility and communicability by healthcare providers. I also want to point out that for the most part, 
after descriptions for all the alternative alternative terms were given, support for renaming schizophrenia increased significantly, as did favorability ratings for the alternative terms. So, by describing the terms, they may have become more accessible and better mm-hmm. understood. And it may also suggest that a name change could best decrease stigma and increase knowledge of the disorder when it's accompanied by initiatives to educate the public. And thinking about this term, uh, altered perception syndrome, you touched on it a little bit. What is it about this term that you think captures the experience of people with schizophrenia? Um, And then also, like, how might it not? What might it be missing? So, you know, I think, kind of like I mentioned that, it it the name itself thing is very easy to understand it's accessible for a lot of people it has face and construct validity right. you know both altered perception and information processing they're core components of schizophrenia so they really accurately describe what the experience might be like for those living with the condition so at least from my perspective I think that might be what was most appealing about that particular name. And in in reviewing some of the comments too, there were some feedback that, Mm -hmm. yes, it's really easy to understand what that means. You know, that, that seems to describe what the condition is like. You know, some potential limitations that were brought up in the comment section were that maybe it's too simple. And maybe it doesn't describe all of the symptoms. And perhaps people have a different idea about what perception means. So the, those are the kinds of you know, limitations that come to mind that at least were mentioned by respondents in the survey. But again, mm-hmm. overall, across all stakeholder groups, it was the clear favorite term. Mm-hmm. What I would add is that you know, another limitation is that you know perceptual disorders are quite non-specific there are many conditions that we traditionally do not think of as um you know belonging to the schizophrenia syndrome Mm -hmm. um have perceptual problems and so uh, the diagnosis might become very broad and non-specific this is one potential Mm -hmm limitation so the term syndrome might be better than a disorder or a disease uh, because uh, it basically does not commit oneself to this being one entity Mm. it's a collection it's still a collection of symptoms that uh, broadly come under a perceptual disturbance Um, but uh, you know it could be three different disorders causing Mm -hmm. this or ten different disorders we do not uh, commit ourselves. So that's that's where science has to guide us going forward. Right. That's that's a good point, uh, Dr. Keshavon, yeah. about like us using the term syndrome to really yeah. try to capture some of that heterogeneity in terms yeah. of symptom yeah. presentations. And, you know, another thing I'll, I'll add, too, is that, you know, along the lines of, you know, altered perception syndrome maybe being too nonspecific, there was actually some comments and feedback we got um, actually by another cab member that maybe you should add thought to the label. Yeah, so- yeah. in fact, the Chinese have already 
named it as the disorder of uh, thought and perception. And so now I guess thinking about, you know, if this were to move forward, you know, what can we imagine would be some either advantages or disadvantages, um, or maybe even just unintended effects of uh, changing the name? Yeah, one advantage I would see it would be an increased acceptance of diagnosis by our patients. And, uh, you know, one of the, the major challenges that we have in uh, treatment of these disorders is lack of engagement and lack of adherence. And a lot of the time, they stop treatment simply because they don't agree with the diagnosis. Mm -hmm. So if we have a name that is more acceptable, that may increase um, the comfort level of um, the clinicians talking to the patients and the patients sharing their diagnosis and taking um, the appropriate steps to get better. Mm-hmm. So treatment engagement would be an important advantage. There could be some disadvantages, some unintended consequences, um, and that is, uh, you know, as I initially alluded to, uh, any label that we come up with could be misused in a broad way. There is also the mm. possibility that uh, any new name also might become stigmatized. So that cannot be ruled out. Mm-hmm. And stigma uh, originates not just from a label, but also the illness itself in many ways are the behaviors that are generated by the illness. And unfortunately, you know, some of the undesirable uh, symptoms of um, what we call schizophrenia, an increased tendency to violence and, um, you know, and, and so forth, um, might themselves contribute to the stigma as well, even independent of the diagnostic label that we give. And uh, the uh, the profession has the responsibility of developing better treatments so that the disease itself can, you know, get better. So that mm-hmm. the the stigmatizing, uh, you know, stigma attached to the names of those diseases could get better and better. And also, um, it is the responsibility of the profession to, you know, really uh, investigate and get to the bottom of what causes these disorders. We're still uh, just barely scratching the surface there. Mm-hmm. So until we do that, some level of stigma will continue to be there with whatever name we give. So it's a matter of degree. Mm-hmm. We, you know, a new name is not going to take stigma away completely. Right. I think Dr. Keshavan summarized um, you know, a lot of the advantages and disadvantages of renaming schizophrenia. I think I can also mention that what I saw in terms of comments from survey respondents is very much in line with, you know, what what Dr. Keshebaum was describing. So advantages being that a name change would reduce stigma, helplessness, discrimination, better represent the characteristics of the condition itself. Mm-hmm. You know, schizophrenia doesn't at all represent mm-hmm. what what schizophrenia the experience of schizophrenia is like. It would avoid like the metaphoric use of that term. It would stimulate public awareness, improve the image of the condition, uh, facilitate communications between patients and mental health providers, and hopefully foster new scientific advances and research models. Mm-hmm. Um, so those were, again, some of the advantages. Some of the disadvantages um, were that simply changing the name alone 
would be ineffective and that any new name would become stigmatized over time. Um, and people who said that just in general called for public education mm. about the term, that that alone should be sufficient. Other commenters uh, called for more scientific research before accepting any name change. Others uh, brought up concerns about diagnostic criteria confusion, loss of disability payments and insurance coverage. And, you know, some were just not satisfied with any of the alternative terms. They don't mm -hmm. feel like there's anything that's, that's suitable, at least at this point. You know, certainly some places have attempted these public campaigns to destigmatize. I think in the UK, there was um, a little bit more of a documented effort. Wondering if either of you have any thoughts about, you know, how effective those are and would that be enough? Well, one needs a multi-pronged effort, um, effort in order to reduce stigma. Mm -hmm. um, so there is... Uh, you know, there is what is called a, um, you know, uh, personalized stigma or um, um, one's own, one becomes stigmatized about one's own illness. Mm -hmm. And uh, so that requires, um, you know, the therapist to focus on integrating the concept of illness into one's entirety as opposed to, you know, becoming, um, defining oneself as a schizophrenic to move from that towards someone who has um, schizophrenia in addition to being a good uh, you know, son or a brother or a husband or a uh, family member or a worker and, uh, and, and so forth. So there is a lot more to a given individual's life than just having a label. And that kind of a recovery-oriented care mm -hmm. uh, would be a very important aspect of reducing stigma. Of course, at a professional level, we have to uh, do everything that we can to improve the knowledge base about this illness, about how we understand the underlying basis of this illness. And that itself will, will help reducing stigma mm -hmm. as well. And of course, uh, better treatments would, of course, naturally go towards uh, uh, improving stigma. For example, when treatment did not exist for tuberculosis, tuberculosis was a highly stigmatized disease. Mm. And stigma began to go away when treatments uh, started becoming effective and emerged. Same thing with cancer. When uh, I was a kid, cancer was highly stigmatized and it was a death sentence. Not anymore. Nowadays, people think of cancer more as often um, as chronic illnesses, or, mm -hmm. uh, diseases to be managed as opposed to diseases that necessarily always kill you. Um, so there is a professional uh, responsibility to develop better treatments and better understanding, um, as well as the, uh, the clinical responsibility of working with patients in a recovery-oriented model to reduce internalized stigma. Right, way. right. And of course, there is also the third part, which is to educate the public so that public understanding of these illnesses would become more based on reality as opposed to some, uh, you know, uh, stereotyped viewpoints. 
I, I attended a talk that both of you uh, gave, which um, was excellent a few months ago on where you presented this project. Um, and during that talk, Dr. Keshavon, you, you touched on um, how we might consider schizophrenia and psychosis to be more of a spectrum of experiences. And so I'm wondering, like, how does our knowledge of what schizophrenia is, you know, that spectrum of experiences, how does that inform renaming schizophrenia? Yeah, so, um, you know, we, we know, we have known for a long time that uh, many disorders in psychiatry uh, kind of uh, overlap with each other in how they present to us. Mm-hmm. The, the case example I gave you of this young lady who was diagnosed with bipolar disorder today and was diagnosed with schizophrenia in a year and then became schizoaffective disorder means that these disorders keep changing even within the same individual and then Mm -hmm. between the diagnosticians these uh, conditions are almost used uh, interchangeably these labels and also increasingly the field is becoming aware of the fact that a number of conditions share commonalities uh, while they also have differences. For example, there are many symptoms that are similar between schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, uh, but there are also distinct differences. And someone with a psychotic bipolar disorder uh, might be diagnosed as schizophrenia in some situations and might change to bipolar in others. Uh, It's not that the disease itself has changed, but the symptoms kind of overlap and change Mm -hmm. over the course of time. Increasingly, the field has thought of defining these as disorders that blur into one another with some overlaps, just like a rainbow spectrum, you know, Mm -hmm. um, know, red and orange um, and violet. Uh, They they kind of uh, run into each other with various shades in between. So the same way psychotic disorders might have multiple disorders, schizophrenia, schizophrenic form, delusional disorder, brief psychotic disorder, schizophrenia, schizoaffective disorder. They all have some commonalities, but also some differences. So it is better to think of them like a spectrum as opposed to independent conditions. This is the same thing that is true of uh, the rest of medicine as well. In nature, these these diseases do not exist as watertight, isolated compartments. Right. They are continuous. So it is better, more accurate to describe them as spectra, just like autism spectrum disorders. Mm -hmm. Interestingly, a a number of journals, including a journal that I edit called Schizophrenia Research, has now changed their names to Schizophrenia, uh, you know, journal of schizophrenia spectrum disorders, same thing with schizophrenia bulletin. So there are institutional um, changes as well in parallel to the clinical understanding of the spectrum nature of these illnesses. Right. Yeah, and I'll just say the DSM-5 also revised the section on schizophrenia and other psychotic disorders to schizophrenia spectrum and other psychotic disorders kind of along the same Mm -hmm. lines. Mm -hmm. There's definitely momentum for that yeah. change. And so this kind of relates to, um, for Dr. Keshavan, um, some people might respond to you, you know, by saying that uh, we should 
just remove the label entirely. Um, like, for example, Jim Van Oss in two th- 2016 uh, suggested that schizophrenia does not exist. Um, and so there have been some arguments uh, that it's stigmatizing, but it also doesn't hang together as a construct and also doesn't capture the diverse and heterogeneous experiences of those with schizophrenia. I'm just wondering your response to this. And then also just how does renaming address these concerns if it does? Well, Jim Van Oss, I know him very well. In some ways, sometimes, uh, you know, one needs to be provocative to make a point heard in the community. So I guess that's his point. However, it could be misunderstood. If you say that schizophrenia doesn't exist, uh, some people might uh, think that, you know, this illness itself doesn't exist. But the fact of the matter is the illness has doesn't go away by taking right. the name away. So, you know, we have to make sure that uh, we don't, you know, make uh, a sweeping statement that we uh, or even the interpretation that schizophrenia does not exist. Schizophrenia or whatever we call it exists because there are people who suffer and people who we come to come for help and we take care of them, but we need a name. Mm-hmm. So um, the term schizophrenia, Vijim uh, Vanos is right, may not, be served, may not serve a purpose as much as it was originally intended. But uh, we have to think of an appropriate alternative name. And we have discussed the various alternatives. We don't have a perfect one. uh, But I think this is an incremental process. Mm -hmm. And maybe the suggestion, the point you had made about, you know, thinking of it as a syndrome kind of helps to address some of these critiques. Yeah, a syndrome or a spectrum, they both have an advantage. Yeah, so related to the field's conceptualization of schizophrenia, how does the current narrative around schizophrenia as a lifelong illness impact patients? Um, And how might altered perception syndrome or another name change service user and clinician expectations? Or is that even an aim or expectation of the renaming? So as we suggested before, Mm -hmm. schizophrenia does little to accurately illustrate the underlying neurobiology or the symptoms experienced by those living with the condition. And it's descriptively misleading in conveying that there's a single entity involved. The term has been adopted to describe any erratic, volatile behavior and has become associated with violence, hopelessness, and desperation. So that leads to distorted public perception, discrimination, and prejudice. Those attitudes negatively affect the lives of people living with the condition as higher levels of stigma are linked to less social interaction, lower levels of recovery, vocational functioning, and quality of life. And as Dr. Keshavan was mentioning before, we know that some Asian countries have reported benefits after Mm. adopting new diagnostic terms for schizophrenia. So, you know, for example, again, in Japan, the change from mind split disease to integration disorder reduced negative associations with the diagnosis, attributions of dangerousness, and negative news coverage about the illness, as well as increased the endorsement of a biopsychosocial cause. And likewise, South Korea's adoption of entombment disorder decreased prejudice and stigma. 
Following the name changes in both Japan and South Korea, more clinicians were willing to disclose schizophrenia diagnoses to patients, and an increased number of patients were willing to seek out treatment regimens. So I think that we're definitely hoping that similar results might emerge from a name change for schizophrenia within our country. Unfortunately, I think even there's provider stigma in the U.S. as well, where some providers have stigmatizing views of individuals with um, schizophrenia or psychosis generally. So that's something that I thought about was like, you know, if there's potential to reduce provider stigma in this, in this, you know, from this name change as well, that would be a great benefit. Now, you mentioned the current narrative around schizophrenia being a lifelong illness. How does it affect patients and so on? Mm -hmm. So the conceptualization of schizophrenia as if it is one entity uh, kind of uh, reinforces the view or perception wrongly among many patients, which are uh, in many ways reinforced by clinicians, that this is an illness that is chronic and lifelong and um, you know, you know, there's not much hope and, and so on. Um, and uh, many psychiatrists that I know um, simply say that uh, your son or daughter, you know, that may have to be ill chronically and may not be able to have a functional life and, and so forth. And this is unfortunate. And um, what people need to realize, and the, the name of a spectrum or a syndrome will do a better job at this, is that there are some subgroups of this illness, this syndrome, um, that might actually recover and do much better. Some might have a recurrent uh, condition. And a small number might have a chronic illness. But you can't say that any given individual, once, they have, once the person mm -hmm. has the illness, is necessarily will have to have a lifelong illness. It's not the case. We know this through extensive research that the outcome is highly variable mm -hmm. with uh, some people having pretty good outcome and some not yeah. so that, that is that's something that uh, educators clinicians uh, need to uh, emphasize in in, uh, in talking to their patients and families right and and you know i think that we can provide evidence-based and effective care in a way that instills a sense of hope for recovery rather than simply informing individuals with the illness about their symptoms and mm -hmm. prognosis and prescribing interventions. You know, Dr. Keshavan and I, along with two of our colleagues, um, Drs. Michelle Friedman-Yakubian and Bashan Davis, recently submitted a paper related to this topic in which Kesh, who is the master of acronyms, um, came up with another wonderful acronym for an approach to working with people with psychosis that integrates aspects of both psychoeducational and recovery-focused models. So, Kesh, um, would you like to share that acronym with everyone? I, you know, I'm I'm good at coming up with acronyms, but not very good at remembering them. So, <laughs> but I'll try my best. So the name um, I came up with is called Inspires. Um, so this is um, basically it captures the um, key principles in how to talk about 
diagnosis with our patients, which is really um, an art as well as a science. And, um, you know, this is important in all of medicine. And uh, there are similar principles that are outlined in talking about cancer or other, other kinds of major medical problems and so on. In psychiatry, one has to be even more thoughtful because there is so much stigma. So you know, reducing stigma or minimizing or avoiding it becomes an important part of it. So we, uh, the diagnostic discussions that have to begin at the very beginning as we are beginning to understand what the patient is coming to us with um, would have to be um, individualized because each person's background and situation is different and how we present the information would have to be individualized. And secondly, you know, to the extent possible to reduce stigma, we need to normalize the, um, the symptoms rather than presenting them as bizarre or crazy. You know, mm -hmm. I mean, people, um, instead of asking the question, uh, do you have paranoid thoughts or do you are saying that you have paranoia, um, using terms such as, you know, you're, you're mistrustful might be a much more normalizing language. So yeah, the, what terms we use would be very, very important in uh, creating or um, in, uh, in, cre in creating the kind of attitudes about illnesses that they develop um, down the road. Um, so uh, individualization and normalization. And also when we present the diagnostic um, uh, you know, formulation to our patients and the families. We need to be mindful of the setting in which we uh, present those and appropriate privacy and the appropriate uh, mm. presence of all the key individuals. Doing it in a team-based team manner would, would be helpful and so on. And of course, take the perspective of where the patient comes from. Because sometimes they come with a lot of uh, wrong views. So you'll have to dispel the misconceptions they have in addition to providing our own viewpoints and so on. So take the perspective of what they are already coming up with. They may have read, they have gone through, you know, Google and Wikipedia and come up with all kinds of impressions of what they have. Mm -hmm. So, um, and then you have um, the uh, information. We have to be accurate in what we provide, the information. We have to make sure that as we are providing diagnostic information, we have all um, the available information from medical records or from lab tests or with psychometric evaluations at our fingertips so that we can provide an accurate information uh, to the uh, clients. And uh, people with these illnesses are so nervous and anxious that they forget and simply giving them a diagnosis on one setting is not enough. We often have to repeat. Mm. And repeat at the same time also reassure. That, that's very, very important. And instill a sense of hope. So, and uh, finally, in all that we do, we have to provide, a, we have to offer empathy. Um, mm. And uh, give them a strategy for the future. And give them next steps. Not just leave them with a diagnosis, but also give them a plan of action. So this is the INSPIRES acronym. 
I also want to say that um, both the naming paper um, and the diagnostic paper are under revision by the journal Schizophrenia Research. And uh, hopefully we will be able to share that to the community. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah. yeah. Um, and so I guess our, our last question is um, the project is done. You said, you know, it's under review to, to be published and hopefully people can have more access to the details. Um, but yeah, what is your goal for the project and where do you see this going in the future? So I think that we're hoping that findings from our project will support the growing momentum for renaming schizophrenia, and it will be viewed as a pilot for potential broader world, worldwide surveying with a commitment from all parties to accept the results. Um, we do realize that renaming schizophrenia is a complex process. It requires careful deliberation and lots of effort in the beginning. And it will need to be accompanied by public education campaigns, legislative changes, mm -hmm. um, amongst other initiatives. You know, like we were suggesting before, this is a multi-pronged process. However, we believe that the revision is well worth the effort, considering all the potential benefits we mentioned in the long run. Yeah, I would add to that that, um, you know, uh, our observations, which I summarized, um, echo similar observations from other studies in Europe um, and, um, and Asia. Um, and so we need to develop an international consensus. And also, even within our study, we have, uh, there are some limitations. We did not get enough of a uh, input from African American and other minority um, you know, stakeholders. Mm -hmm. So we would like to be able to do this in a bigger, um, more systematic way. But uh, what we have done so far is giving us some directions for the future. Yeah. So I guess with that, we, you know, I just want to thank you for your time. Um, thank you for this very important work you're both doing. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Madden America podcast. Visit maddenamerica.com for more news, views, and updates.